Good morning. Glad you are here. It just seems like seconds ago we were in this same setting. Here we are again. I can't believe it. We're at part seven in our study forward, journeying through the book of Mark. I absolutely love the fast paced movement of the gospel of Mark. Now you've noticed in previous sermons that the texts are long and that's, that's intentional. It's not intentional that uh, that the, the entire experience is, is too long, but the intention would be that we are able to see segments of the life of Jesus truly lived out before man here on planet Earth so that we would grasp the fullness of the Christ, understanding his heart and his life, and most of all, his, his teachings. So I'm grateful to join you again in the Gospel of Mark. We're, we're in this section, chapters 8 through 10, where our focus rests upon his heart, his glory, his priority. When we focus upon Jesus, especially with these emphases, oh, it's nearly impossible for our faith not to move forward when we genuinely respond to his heart, his glory, his priority. It was author Alston Chase who actually quoted of this present generation, every age has its illusions. History sometimes becomes merely a portrait of the past that reflects things in the future that just aren't true. And he references what he terms a misguided sense of progress. And this is what he indicated today as a misguided sense of progress. When we confuse technological improvements with cultural advancements, he observes that although we think we are advancing in technology, that advancement doesn't necessarily mean that our culture improves. He references this as a misguided sense of progress, a misguided sense of moving forward. You know, I reflect on his words and I sometimes recall moments in my own life where I tried to improve something in my life, hopefully, spiritually speaking, on my own. Perhaps I'll read better. Perhaps I'll talk better. Perhaps I'll behave better. And sometimes when we try to make those technical improvements in our own lives, we can cause a misguided sense of progress, and yet there would be very little advancement or change. Sometimes this happens in churches. Buildings improve, programs improve, numbers improve. But if there does not become real change, even the church can have a misguided sense of progress. So today we're going to combat this head on by focusing upon Jesus, not upon technical improvements or, or distinct details that we can possibly improve on our own. No, we're going to push all that aside. And, and our journey, our priority today becomes rested upon Jesus, his heart, his glory, his priority. For this was the, the motivation the Holy Spirit gave Mark when this gospel, along with the others, was scribed. This gospel became circulated somewhere in the middle of the first century for the purpose of moving followers of Jesus forward so that they, through the gospel, could identify with the ministry of Jesus and his disciples 
as Jesus moved them forward. So let's rejoin the Gospel of Mark in Mark chapter 10, and let's focus again on the themes, the heart, the glory, and the priority of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with his heart. As chapter 10 opens, getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now this transition again, transitions from perhaps Capernaum, and now they're traveling from Galilee into Judea, beyond the Jordan. The crowds gathered around him again, and according to Jesus' custom, you've seen this in the first nine chapters, Jesus begins to teach them. Now, with the exception of the cursing of the fig tree, from this point forward, there are no miracles Jesus performed as recorded here, only his teachings. And he begins to teach and instruct and encourage. Now, as chapter 10 opens, verses 1 through 12, Jesus focuses upon teaching uh, that, that addressed a very sensitive issue, the issue of divorce. Some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus, and they began testing him and questioning him concerning divorce. And they were asking if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now, I know some of you are probably tensing up, especially if you've ever experienced divorce, especially if you've been remarried. You yourself might be tensing up. Do not tense up. Hear what Jesus has said and hear the emphasis of these verses. And know that first, before this issue was discussed, the Pharisees intended to trap Jesus with this question. How did they make this attempt? Well, because Jesus knew that the Pharisees already knew the answer to their question. So Jesus said to them, well, what does Moses say? They responded, well, Moses said that a certificate of divorce should be given to send her away. Now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, we are given a provisional piece of the Mosaic law, a certificate of divorce. That piece of the law was provisional. It was not exhortative, meaning divorce was not a command. Divorce was not an active part of the law. This certificate of divorce, the Pharisees reference here, was only a provisional part of the law. A provisional part means this is what happens when the stubbornness of man's heart commits an error. You know, we are told to confess our sins to one another in the New Testament, but we're told not to sin. So confessing our sins one to another that we may be forgiven is a preventive response to man's fallenness. Here, the certificate of divorce was preventive in the Mosaic law, but that preventive or that, uh, that uh, pr pr uh, pr provision was actually misused and in a way that created license among the Jewish culture, especially for the men of the culture. In, in ancient Jewish uh, culture, the wives were seen, sadly, as more of a property than a co-equal in the relationship. And the certificate of divorce was greatly misused and, and gave license to, to pursue divorce regardless of the circumstance. In fact, two schools of thought were produced from that provisional law. And one school of thought actually uh, encouraged 
uh, divorce for any reason. This was a provisional law that became polluted by the fallenness and stubbornness of man. The Pharisees used that law to trap Jesus. Jesus said to them in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart, God gave this command. But God also said this, from the beginning of creation, God made them, verse 6, male and female. Verse 7, for this reason, a man shall be the father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. And they're no longer two, but they're one. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. So this provisional law of Moses was actually made subordinate by what I like to call the Edenic law, meaning the law of Eden, the Garden of Eden, where God created marriage and endorsed it with his standard husband and wife, leaving mother and father, becoming one. God said, this is good. And so Jesus brought in the higher standard of marriage to overturn the misuse of a certificate of divorce. And he also heightened the dignity of the wife. For the wife was not to be seen as something that belonged to the husband, but as one with the husband in a way that honors God. It is time in this culture that we understand the heart of Jesus for marriage. Jesus' heart for marriage is based on what God created in the Garden of Eden. Jesus' heart for marriage is one man and one wife for life. Now, if you've ever had the difficult experience of divorce, understand that Jesus' heart for you is redemption and recovery and where you are now to enter into his design for marriage. One man and one wife forever. This is the heart of Jesus for all marriages, for your marriage. Verses 10, 11, and 12 indicate that Jesus raised the standard when he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and, who, and, and if she does, the same. Now, Jesus was indicating how sacred marriage becomes. Again, do not allow the words of Christ to sound as if condemnation comes to you if you've been divorced. No, Jesus raises the standard from the abuse the husband gave and, and from the uh, loss of dignity that the wife received from ancient culture. And Jesus said, you both are brought together to honor God. So honor God in your marriage because Jesus, his heart is for your marriage. Build your marriage on him and on his love for you and God's plan for husband and for wife. Oh, experience the joy, the grace, and the mercy that we all desire and need in our marriages. So yes, see the heart of Jesus for your marriage. This becomes a, a phenomenal revelation of who our Christ is and his desire for, for our marriages to honor and to reflect his heart. Now let's pick up in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him. Now we don't know if this is fitted chronologically, but it is definitely fitted thematically. And I believe this is what Mark had in mind when God gave him his words to write. And they brought children to him that he might touch them. But notice this, when the children were brought to Jesus, the disciples rebuked them, meaning rebuked or corrected the adults who were bringing the children unto Christ. Now, likely parents were bringing children to Jesus. It was not uncommon in this present culture that 
that parents would bring their children to great men for them to bless. And here, parents are bringing their children to the Messiah, but the disciples, they don't know. They, they rebuke them. And we're not certain as to why the disciples rebuke them. But in this moment, we see yet another part of the heart of our Savior. We see his heart for marriage, but we see his heart for children. In this present culture, children were certainly seen as second-class citizens. In fact, if someone great was teaching in the minds of the adults, the children would have no part of this. And the, the disciples rebuked those parents who were bringing their children right in the midst of a time of teaching and bringing them to Jesus. Jesus said, here's his heart. Here is the heart of our Savior. Permit the children to come to me, verse 14. Do not hinder them. This is chapter 10 of Mark, verse 14 and 15. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like this child will not enter at all. And he took the children in his arm and he blessed them. The word child there is the same word you found in chapter 7 with Jairus' daughter. And she was estimated to be around the age of 12. Here the idea would be of children that age and younger, even, even babies. These children were brought to Jesus and he, he blessed them. He, he touched them and he validated them in his kingdom. Jesus said it would be better disciples that you would come to me with the innocence of a child instead of this pretense of indignation against those who were bringing the children. And so Jesus, he was indignant himself toward the disciples and said, no, let the children come to me. This is the kingdom. And so, oh, do you see the heart of Jesus for your home, for marriage, for our children? I tell you, I'm, I'm always amazed and overwhelmed at the, at the beautiful, the beautiful priority, the beautiful emphasis and focus Jesus brings uh, to, to children. I all at times will, uh, will see in my daughter's face as she's holding her own copy of the Bible and reading it and commenting that Jesus values her even at that young age. She's an important, significant part of his kingdom. And my prayer is that I'm raising her so that as she becomes aware of what it means to follow Jesus, both in commitment, confession, and baptism, and in life, that her heart's being prepared to do so. Jesus prioritizes this, and so should we. All this reveals the heart of our Savior. Now, as we uh, move into the next episode, we move from the focus on, on marriage and on children to verse 17 and a conversation between Jesus and the rich young ruler. Verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, again, we're looking at the itinerant movement of Christ, somewhat recorded here fast and maybe even sporadic if you're trying to trace his movement on a map. But here in this itinerant movement, Jesus is sitting out and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Again, Mark reveals in a very blunt way, Jesus correcting those who looked at him without seeing the father. Jesus said, no, see the father. Do not see me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And here that emphasis falls upon the heart of this rich, young ruler, this seeming progressive, spiritually speaking, or religiously speaking, who came to Jesus. And Jesus said, no one is good. And then Jesus said to him, you know the commandments, right? Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, 
Do not defraud, honor your parents. And the rich young ruler said, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth up. I wonder if the children were still close by and maybe the rich young ruler said, who felt a bit young himself, hey, I've, I've been there. If they're in your kingdom, I can be in your kingdom. I've, I've kept the law from their age even till now. Jesus said, well, there's, there's one thing you lack. Look at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and felt love for him. Do you see the compassion again that we, we saw evidenced in chapter 8? Jesus had love on this one who obviously sincerely obeyed the law but was missing the truth of the Christ. Jesus loved him and was moved for him. And Jesus said one thing you lack, sell all you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus, of course, was not giving him another law to obey. Jesus was calling his heart. He knew that his heart was for his gain, even though outwardly he kept the law rigorously and perhaps he even felt he was keeping the law genuinely. Jesus said, your heart's not there. Because at these words, verse 22, the rich young ruler was saddened and he went away grieving for he owned much property. And Jesus wasn't denouncing that the, that the rich had no place in the kingdom, but he did have a question to answer. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at this word. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And then Jesus said, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the heart must be surrendered completely to our Lord. This was the teaching that actually Jesus engaged with concerning the rich young ruler, but turned and allowed his disciples to grow in this way. Now, when Jesus used the uh, anecdotal imagery of a camel through the eye of the needle, Jesus was actually referencing the largest animal, at least uh, in the, in the uh, vernacular of the present culture, the largest animal would always be quoted as the camel. In our day, we would say the elephant. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, the very big and obvious uh, issue that needs to be discussed. Well, in Jesus' day, the big animal was not the elephant, but the camel. And Jesus said in another place in Matthew, you you strain a camel to drink a gnat. Jesus, or you, you strain a gnat to drink a camel. In that analogy, Jesus was talking about the smallest insect and the largest animal. Here, he focuses on the camel, the largest animal, and then he focuses upon the smallest opening, the eye of a needle. Now, there's no evidence that in Jewish culture there was an opening in the fence that was small that was called the needle's eye. Now, some have, have alluded to this, but most scholarship shows no evidence of that. The imagery, the, the, the anecdotal force would be the largest animal, the smallest opening. Well, that's impossible. And then Jesus, in verse 26, said, uh, or they were astonished. And, and they looked at Jesus and said, who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with people it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Jesus knew the difficulty of that rich young ruler, but he still had a heart for him. He loved him. And with this, we see evidence of the heart of our Savior for our marriages, for our children, even for a rich young ruler who found it impossible to surrender his heart. And the affections he had held toward the uh, achievements and the gains of this life. But Jesus still loved him sincerely. And I, and I feel I need to pause here and just remind you that Jesus loves you so much. 
He cares about your marriage. You may feel that your marriage is great or your marriage may be in distress. Your marriage may have ended. Jesus still loves you and he, he loves, he loves the promise and hope that he, he desires to see in your marriage. Jesus loves your children. Perhaps your children have gone down paths you've not desired. Perhaps there are medical and other challenges with your child. Jesus loves your child. Do not give up on them. And Jesus loves you even when your heart is so distracted by all the cares of the world. He, he has a heart for you, for your home. Never miss the heart of our Savior. In keeping with the pattern of chapters 8 through 10, we move from the heart being revealed to his glory. We just have one episode to look at concerning his glory. We continue our narrative in verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus talked about his suffering again and talked about what is to come. And again, he took the 12 aside. And notice in verse 32, there were many that were fearful of Jesus. They were amazed and were fearful. They, they saw in Jesus through his teachings and his miracles, even as it began in chapter 1, in the synagogues, in the countryside, in the Galilean villages, even in the in the Gentile territories of the Decapolis, people saw him, became amazed at the evidence of God in him. And so now we have an evidence of his glory and how people saw him and then and how Jesus spoke of what is to come. Verse 33, we're going up to Jerusalem, the Son of Man. Believe it or not, that phrase referencing his humanity points also to his deity. He's the Son of God and the Son of Man, a theme all throughout Mark. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him. And they'll hand him over to the Gentiles to, to be crucified. They will mock him, spit on him. They will kill him. But three days later, he will rise again. Jesus speaks of his own glory. The incarnate glory manifested when he's resurrected. James and John came up and said, Teacher, we need you to do something for us. We want to sit on your right hand and on your left. Verse 38, Jesus said, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the cup or be baptized? They said, we're able. Jesus said, the cup I drink, you shall drink. And the baptism I have, you shall be baptized. But to sit on my left and right, that's for the Father. Jesus, again, is pointing the glory to God. But Jesus reminded James and John, yes, you will, you will share in me. You will be my apostles, but there will be suffering. The cup Jesus referenced was the cup of suffering and trials. Hearing this, the other disciples became indignant and uh, Jesus said this, verse 42, you know that those who are recognized as rulers in the Gentile world, they lord it over and they exercise authority, verse 43. But it's not this way with you. If you wish to be great, you must serve. If you wish to be first, you must be a slave for all. Here comes the glory of Christ. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, pointing to the cross in the, in the empty tomb. Oh, Jesus reveals his glory. Even the disciples were focused upon their gain, even like the rich young ruler. Hey, can we sit here? How can we be great in your kingdom? Jesus said, serve. And then Jesus made statements that pointed to his glory. His glory, can I share this with you? Four manifestations of his glory here. His glory became manifested in his obedience to the cross. And that's what was talked about here. His glory became manifested in his self-sacrifice. Again, Jesus spoke of that here. His glory became manifested in how Jesus would become lonely, meaning he would step away from the crowd and the, and the people pressing in to see the wonders. 
and he would die alone on a cross, meaning before the Father. And then his glory was manifested in the covenantal Christ, Jesus mirroring the love of God, bringing the lost, broken world to himself through Jesus Christ, giving all an opportunity to place their trust in the Messiah. This becomes the glory of Christ revealed here. And this glory became perpetually manifested to the disciples. Jesus was teaching them how to respond to his glory. It was A.W. Tozer who said, God is looking for men in whose hands his glory will be safe. Are you amazed at the glory of Christ? Is God's glory in Christ safe with you? Or do you tend to push that aside for your own gain? Focus on the glory of Christ. Is his glory safe in your hands as you serve him? Allow all that you do to point to the glory of Christ. Oh, what a beautiful picture we have here of the glory of Christ. And now we close at the end of chapter 10 with his priority. What has happened? We've seen his heart. We've seen his glory. Now again, keeping with this theme, would you focus on his priority? And we look at the final episode in Mark 10. And this becomes the story of one that we know as blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. And here's the story beginning in verse 46 of chapter 10. So they came to Jericho. Jericho was that place Herod had rebuilt from ruins of old near Jerusalem. So they're closing in on Jerusalem. And there was a rocky wilderness type road that they had actually been walking on since the opening of verse 32 of this chapter. And now this road is taking them past Jericho into Jerusalem where there'll be the triumphal entry and then the passion of our Lord. But here passing Jericho, there's a blind man seated by the road. His name is Bartimaeus. People knew that he had a heritage of being disabled. Perhaps son of Timaeus meant that even his father was a beggar or his heritage was one of, of deficit and destitution and loss. But when they heard, uh, when he heard, meaning Bartimaeus, that it was Jesus coming by, he crowded out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Look into the face of blind Bartimaeus for just a moment. See his past, son of Timaeus, son of one who has been destitute. Look at his past. But second, look at the privilege given to him. He cried out, son of David. Many were telling him to be quiet. Jesus said to his disciples, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage and stand up. He's calling for you. Do you see his past, one of, of a destitute life? Do you see his privilege? Jesus called him. Now look at the provision. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Do you see the provision? For Bartimaeus, his past, his privilege led to, his, to the provision Jesus brought. And then look at the promise. Jesus said, go, you are well. You've been healed. And then notice the purpose. Immediately he regained sight and he followed Jesus on the road. Instead of on the side of the road, he followed him. 
Do you see the priority of Jesus? Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. He's about to enter his Passion Week. He's just concluded an amazing series of teachings and discourses, some of which Mark have recorded, and he enters into those final days, but he stops and sees Bartimaeus and sees the opportunity for one person to move from the side of the road to following Jesus on the road. Do you see the past? Perhaps you see your past all too vividly, failures, spiritual destitutes. Do you see from the past to the privilege, Jesus calling you to follow him, to bring forgiveness and cleansing to you? Do you see the provision of Jesus saying, what do you need? I'm here to fulfill that which is empty in your life. Do you see the promise? When Jesus said to Barmaeus, go, you're healed, he pronounced change. And Jesus has pronounced that in our lives when we trust him for the forgiveness of sin, that change and that cleansing comes. And then Jesus gave purpose. Bartimaeus joined him on the road to follow, from the side of the road to walking on the road. This references the priority of Jesus. Jesus calls us from our past. Jesus calls us in that privilege to come to him. Jesus provides Jesus gives us the promise that we are forgiven. And then Jesus gives us the ultimate purpose to follow him. This becomes his priority for us. This is made very clear. His priority for you. You saw his heart, his glory, and now his priority. Follow him. Come from your past. See the change he desires to bring in your life and come after him. I've quoted this before, but it deserves to be repeated from Father John McKenzie. If the church were to lose its hierarchy, its clergy, its collection of buildings, its stores of learnings, its sacred books, and if the church were to face the world with nothing but the living presence of the risen Christ and its mission to proclaim the good news to all the nations, it would be no less a church than the church of Peter and Paul, and perhaps it would be even more of a church than it is now. Do we need our buildings? Do we need our stores of knowledge? Do we need our sacred books and libraries? Do we need our programs? Or do we need the living presence of the risen Christ and our involvement in his mission to take the good news to the nations? That's the true identity of the church. That's the true identity of following Jesus. That references his priority. Do you see the heart of our Lord? Do you see his glory? And do you understand his priority for our lives? This becomes how we move forward in faith to follow Jesus. Thank you for joining us once again for this time of teaching. We've, we've gone through 10 chapters of fast-moving action concerning Jesus having called his disciples and ministering and changing lives. And as Jesus and the gospel moves forward in Mark's narrative, the work of Jesus moves forward in our life. Are you trusting him? Is your faith in Christ moving forward? Don't become stuck. Move forward. Know his heart. See his glory and agree with his priority for your life, to join him on his mission as we proclaim his name locally and to the nations. Move forward in your faith. 
If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, there's a website location on the screen right now. Use that. Go to that now. Allow us to have some dialogue and conversation with you to show you what it means to trust Jesus and to place your faith in what he has done on the cross. Don't just stop at believing in God. The full story is that God sent Jesus that we might respond to him so that we can be brought to God. Place your faith in Jesus today. Don't wait. Trust his forgiveness for your life. Pray, Jesus, I believe in you. I receive your forgiveness. I know you're raised from the dead and you're alive now. I commit my life to you. Oh, let that be your prayer and your heart's cry and your heart's song. And reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. And dear Christian, see his heart. Respond worshipfully to his glory and agree with his priority over your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting us here as we depart from this uh, time of worship and study. Increase our faith and help us to go forward in faith in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Love you a lot. See you in a few days for part eight of Forward. Can't wait till we do this again. God bless.